we've, I mean, we've known that e-commerce is the future for a long time. Uh, we've known it for years and years, but it seems like for many people, this year has been the catalyst to kind of speed things up a little bit. Um, can you talk about from your perspective with the market, how, how the year has been, how 2020 has been? Yeah, look, I guess no one could have anticipated um, what we saw this year in terms of COVID and the impact it has had, but it's, it's certainly been an amazing accelerator for us. Um, it, it hasn't really changed where we were going. It's just accelerated that path. And I think, you know, we've probably seen acceleration um, for a number of years. And it, it's really history repeating itself, because if you look at what happened in Asia with SARS, particularly in China, um, you know, we've seen this this movie before in the past. Um, the major e-commerce platforms and sort of business-to-consumer e-commerce adoption really uh, grew with SARS. I mean, that was the start of the likes of you know, Tmall and, and JD, um, and we, we're seeing a similar thing happening here now. Why do you think? Why is it? Why does it take a, a catalyst like this? Well, well, an event like this to to become that catalyst? Because, as I say, well, like we know it's the future. Why? Why is there some resistance? Look, I think it just speeds it up because the the, the average consumer gets pushed into it. You know, traditionally, with, with any kind of product, you've got an adoption curve where you have early adopters that are comfortable to to jump in, and then they experience benefits and. Um, you know, over time become more frequent users. With something like a pandemic, it, it pushes everyone um, into uh, into that purchase experience out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we can see that in terms of our customer profile. If I look at the customers we had pre-pandemic, we had certain demographics that skewed a little bit younger, whereby now if we look at our demographics, we're pretty well aligned to the New Zealand population curve. Wow. So it's, it's really changed the profile of the customer. I mean, all cohorts have grown, but certainly cohorts that before were not that active mm. uh, are quite active now. And I guess when we're talking about the the acceleration, I guess, I, I guess this, it takes two to tango. So you need you need the brands on board, and you need the consumers. Have you have you have you seen that there has been far more acceleration on the on the brand side of things as well? On, on both sides, um, certainly there was you know some some brands that were holding out um, due to complicated distribution agreements um, and, and, and store networks that I guess were protective you know which is still a thing uh, in some markets and some of some of those have started calling us where we used to call them all the time so that's been a nice development but on the flip side also um, COVID's meant that the borders are closed um, you know, for people and freight. So uh, that's also changed the game. So we, you know, we're much more of a domestic platform now. We were always, you know, majority domestic, but now we're, we're probably 92, 93% domestic trade, whereby before maybe 30% would come in internationally. So that sort of changed those dynamics as well. Oh, that's interesting. It'd be, it'd be cool to talk a little bit more about that in the future, but should we go back to the beginning a little bit? Because... I remember, I remember seeing you in the very early days, kind of slogging it out, going brand by brand, and now all of a sudden you've got over. Well, it's probably not all of a sudden, um, but you've got to over two million, over two million products. I mean, did you know that that? Did you just have a sense that that momentum would come? That you know, the early days would be a slog. You just have to have to go for it. But did you did you have this mapped out? There was certainly belief that it would happen. Um, and uh, as you say, it is it is hard work. Like any any two sided marketplace, you have to grow demand and supply sort of in a balance. You know, if 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 you don't achieve liquidity, then you're either going to upset your sellers or your buyers for not having enough buyers and not having enough range to sort of purchase from you. So it is a it is a, a constant balancing act. Um, but we've always believe, and you know, we we're still pretty early in our journey. Uh, we've more than doubled our range in the first year, but. From here, you know, my my ambition is to get it to around 20 million products um, over the next five years. So that's uh, still a 10x in terms of uh, assortment growth that we want to achieve. And ultimately, you know, our business model relies on frequency. So the more problems we can solve for customers, um, the more successful we will be, and therefore the more range and and the more assortment we need to and achieve then- that. If we can talk, because I guess once you're starting to get to 20 million products, like that puts you, you become a little bit of a threat, I'm sure, to some some of the larger international players. Is that is that something that, that you're conscious of as well? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we're here to win and to build a leading e-commerce platform for New Zealand. So we, we need to, it's a necessity for us to, to have that kind of range to achieve that goal. And do you think that, I mean, is there, is there international potential as well? Like, uh, um, I'm, I'm just looking at, well, for instance, your your sponsorship. You've got you're supporting uh, Emirates Team New Zealand, uh, which is great. That gives you that gives you local uh, branding, of course. But it really puts you starts to put you on the map internationally as well. Is that is that part of it? Like, do you do do you have um, international growth aspirations? Definitely. I mean, first and foremost, we're here for New Zealand, and I mean the the, the white space and the opportunity exists here in, in, in New Zealand as a start. But as we are bringing on so many uh, New Zealand businesses and brands, there certainly is an opportunity to push that range up internationally. Um, and we're building a lot of infrastructure that um, can be leveraged on an international base. We've got the market.com as an international domain name that can be used in, in any market. Um, you know, expanding into adjacent markets like Australia would be sort of a logical next step for us. Um, the other challenge is to get the interest of the international brands and international supply only being situated in New Zealand does diminish the appeal somewhat because a total addressable market of 5 million people makes it difficult to work with operators you know, out of the US or the UK um, just to get prioritised in the global context. Um, so there is benefits to us having a broader global reach for New Zealand businesses selling here and beyond, mm. but also for bringing some international range into the market, um, you know, for certain gaps and specialties that, that are not well served domestically. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool concept when you think like in the old days, if you were a producer here, like your entry point into the US might have been striking a deal with the with Walmart if you could, but potentially, uh, like you become a gateway to to that global market. Scale that you've got. And we don't we don't have to do it alone. I mean, I'm a big believer in partnerships. Um, you know, there could be a world one day where we partner with other platforms in, in other markets. Mm. And as you say, we become a gateway um, for brands and particularly New Zealand brand owners and, and, and retailers um, because it's it's complex. The logistics mm. are complex. Um, the data integrations are complex. The operations are complex, um, and we can remove a lot of that complexity for them. Yeah. Did you um, you were talking about the, the the change in the demographic before? What are the what are the things did you notice this year? Because because you have a lot of insight. Uh, did did kind of what we were buying did that start to change as well? Like were we starting to buy prepper gear, fishing rods, <laughs> Dutch ovens, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, there was sort of the necessity um, things like like masks and. Uh, PPE in general, sanitizer and things like that. There was a few spikes in that, you know, as you would imagine, when the various announcements came through. Um, but then more broadly, I think customer missions have changed um, based on their needs. Uh, and these are just, I guess, sort of logical um, effects that happen from people spending more time at home. So mm. people need more things to entertain their kids at home. Uh, people in general are spending more time at home. So, so uh, investing in their, in their homes, in their gardens, um, they're not traveling, so they're planning on entertaining more. Uh, people might be doing up their batches. Um, people are working from home. They're, they're uh, investing in their home office and, um, you know, buying a second screen and a, a better camera and a microphone and, and, and things like that, office chairs, um, office desk for home. Uh, so all, all the missions related to people changing their life in terms of study from home, work from home, entertain more at home, um, that all, I guess, results in, in, in new shop emissions and, and increases in those categories. Um, and we've, we've definitely seen that. Um, and then we had other periods. Um, so when we went sort of through level three and level four, of course, um, there was a real shift towards essentials, um, you know, which is predominantly uh, food and beverage. So that was, a, you know, and, and a bit of, bit of health um, that that was a big category then, but now that we're out of that, you know, it's it's mostly sort of the home missions um, that, that, that we're observing. And I mean, I guess it's, this is probably a longer, it's probably a longer metric, but do you, have you noticed any kind of shifts and maybe this is even before um, you started with the market, but, but have consumers in general 
have we started to become more focused on, say, the quality of the product or the impact on the environment? Are we are we more uh, conscious of uh, of where our products come from and that kind of thing? Are we have we are we turning into hippies? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more awareness and there's more. Um, there's more options and there's uh, more awareness and more demand for sustainable products and eco-friendly products. And more broadly, I think there is a, a trend towards a return to quality um, around uh, you know, certain categories. Mm. It will be interesting to see what happens um, with the sort of economic impact of COVID long-term, if there then will be a return to value again in some segments as well, mm. uh, and what that will do to sustainability. But we, we've certainly launched um, a lot of eco-friendly and eco-focused um, brands, particularly sort of in, in the beauty space, um, and we've seen good good take up in that. Also, also in the baby space, you know, some mm. sustainable nappy options and things like that, and and uptake has been pretty strong. Mm. Um, we are also working on um, some packaging initiatives, so it'll be quite interesting to see what the uptake is around around that in the coming year. Uh, it's something we we're pretty excited about. Um, because, of course, being a marketplace, um, we influence aspects of the supply chain. We don't control the full supply chain because the vast majority of our merchants um, send direct. But we are looking at the elements that we, um, that we influence and how we can best influence that for, for better outcomes there. It is quite fascinating. I was just thinking as you're talking about nappies, it'd be interesting to see if there's a rise like uh, after the, there might be, there might be a little bit of increase in activity after the first lockdown, there might be some babies coming through, but it, 100%. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, alone in our office, there's so many COVID babies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we're seeing that. <laughs> it's fascinating because you really have an insight on so many so many areas like you just uh, if you were if you're into behavioral economics you could really geek out on the uh, on just the insights that you would that you would have have there yeah, it's been, a lot of fun. have there been any assumptions that you made before before setting up the market in terms of like you've got vast experience before this but were there assumptions that you had made that had been tested you know whether there i mean it might be it might be the one-click thing or, you know, were the things that you thought were really important in terms of the e-commerce side that uh, that maybe weren't? Yeah, I mean, we spent, so I landed here in the beginning of 2018 and we spent about four months working on a strategy before we got our funding and, and set up the business. And then it took us about 14 months to get into market. So, you know, we spent quite a lot of time thinking about the business model and, and what we would need to make it work. And like any new business, the only thing that's certain about the model that you create is that it's going to be wrong. And it's a question of how wrong it's going to be, right? Because you're working you're working based on assumptions, um, some market data, of course, but uh, before you're operating. So we had a lot of assumptions around, you know, number of customers that we would adopt, um, lifetime value, frequency of shop, et cetera. Um, and we've, We've been fairly right with the model. We've been fairly right with the model. Um, we were running, you know, a little bit behind, sort of coming maybe four or five months into it. And then with COVID, it, it helped us sort of push through to hit most of those assumptions around um, just the number of customers we could get on and um, the frequency um, of shop that we could get on. Um, so. It's been interesting in that sense that, uh, you know, like, like business, it's always, it's the amount of effort and prep you put into it, but then there is also an element of luck, right? And, and in some ways, you know, for most people, COVID's been a horrible thing, but for us, it has been, you know, it has been somewhat lucky because it's helped us with our assumptions. Mm. Um, the assumptions were probably 80% right. And with COVID, they're sort of 120% right, if that makes sense. Mm. When is it sometimes when you're dealing with with a high with a with potentially a very high tech space like there's so many there's so many uh, bits and pieces that you can really really work on is it sometimes easy for to, to forget the human side of things as well uh, do you do do you notice people within the within the space and these might have even been people that you worked with uh, with your past business but do do people forget about the the human side of e-commerce no i don't think so because it is a human business i mean ultimately this business is driven by people 
um, and everything that we've created and everything that happens mm. all day is, is done by people. So in terms of our own experience, it's, it's very human. And then customers are also, you know, we interact with customers all day, every day. And if, if, if we don't do what we say we're going to do, we, we hear back from them pretty quickly. So um, it ultimately comes down to, you know, solving problems for customers and delivering on the promises that you make in terms of shipping it to them, um, having you know, a good price for the item, um, solving any problems when there's a return, et cetera. So I, I, I think the human element is super important in retail. Um, and a business like ours can't survive or thrive without um, high frequency of mm. purchase. Right? So if, if, if our customers would come once or twice and then don't shop with us again, uh, our, our business would fundamentally break. So the human side is actually it's actually very important. Um, it's not always easy to get that right, but it's a it's a critical critical element in terms of how we prepare for it, how we communicate, uh, how we empathise with people's needs. Um, yeah, it's it's critically important. Mm. And on the uh, just in terms of the communication side of things, like, uh, like it's it's one thing to build it. Uh, and it's another thing to get people to come. I mean, how did you, how did you, how have you found that process? Um, it's hard, you know. Scaling, scaling a marketing program um, is challenging. Um, we we've learned a lot, you know, in, in in that space in terms of how to talk to the audience, um, uh, where we can get scale, um, what partners we work with. Um, but we've started making some good gains there now, mm. um, and you know that's. Ultimately, for us, we need really broad reach, and then and then we need to build frequency on top of that, right? So we've been we've been focusing a lot on getting a, a critical mass in terms of reach, and now building frequency into that base. Um, and we've we've struck some really good partnerships um, that have helped us. Um, so of course, you know, we we are majority owned by the warehouse group, so we've been lucky that we can leverage some of the databases there. Um, but then also we've partnered um, with people like Vodafone, for example. So about mm. three months ago, we've announced a partnership whereby all Vodafone customers now get um, access to our um, full market club. And that's been very successful. Um, so we, we're, looking, we're looking for ways to sort of accelerate the adoption uh, through partnership and creative means. Uh, because anyone, anyone can buy audience through Google and Facebook. Um, mm. But the uh, limit of that, I guess, is the limit of your budget. And it's not always the most cost-effective way to to grow a business. It's fantastic, don't get me wrong. Like we we we're very active on those platforms, um, but we're also looking always for creative ways to 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 grow efficiently uh, beyond those standard advertising means. Yeah, and I guess I mean we don't have to go into too much too many specifics, but but even on our side, we know from from experience that say the conversion rate from a, a really solid email list and and, a, and an audience is far stronger than anything you would get through social media or or uh, Google AdWords uh, straight away. So I guess it's it is being creative about um, finding those databases as well. Yeah, hundred percent, and the offer ultimately. You know, I think if you've got the right product. Um, that dictates a lot. So it's also really been an important thing for us, um, understanding our customers, seeing what people are truly interested in um, and getting much more, I guess, uh, intentful around that uh, based on the, on the data and, and the knowledge that we have. Would there be any, just on this, would there be any advice that you'd have? Because, I mean, a lot of, as has been saying, I mean, this year has been the acceleration of uh, of many things. But would there be would there be advice, just general advice that you would have for uh, for businesses who are having to move really quickly and, you know, whether it's setting up the e-commerce side of things or, or moving more into the digital space uh, just in terms of everything that they do, any kind of, and it's a really broad question, but any any initial advice that you'd that you'd give them? Yeah, well, that is a very broad question. I think in terms of broader digitization, uh, you know, if, if it's for businesses that are not in the space, I would sort of encourage you to do it quickly. And getting in the space and learning and iterating quickly is better than than being perfect. Yeah, it, it is an environment where you can evolve quite quickly. Um, you know, unlike, of course, physical retail or physical distribution, 
um, where you really need to get everything perfectly aligned mm. in the digital experience. You can start simple and you can add to it every day, every week. And, um, you know, time to market is so critical and the time to learnings is so critical in this space. So my advice would be just to move quickly um, rather than, than creating the be all and end all experience and then iterating on that. Um, mm. I know that's, that's sort of fairly abstract advice, but that certainly helped us. Um, you know, we're constantly trying to apply brutal focus to what we do. Our backlog is mm. years and years and years of ideas. Um, and it's that's probably one of the hardest things in the business is to decide what we do next, where we invest in terms of um, innovation and focus around our tech product and um, overall customer experience. Um, and we try to be very focused and only do a few things at a time and do them well and then move on to the next. That was uh, that was really good advice from a really shitty question. So thank you, thank you for that. In terms of that, in terms of the brutal focus, like how do you ring fence that? How do you prioritize those areas where, as, as you're saying, like you can do so many things and you and you've got so many ideas, but how do you really nail the the most important things? Yeah, so I'm not going to pretend that we're perfect at it. It's something that evolves, and we've tried a few different approaches. Um, we do we do spend a lot of time, I guess. Uh, defining our strategy, our goals. We, we run um, OKRs through product business. So we've got a clear um, uh, planning cycle where we have annual goals as a business. And then we, we have quarterly goals um, at a business level. And then that um, flows down into the teams. So there's a sort of top down, bottom up planning um, routine. Um, and we, we measure that constantly. Um, so that sort of sets the framework, I guess. And then within that framework, we prioritize initiatives. So we sort of look at two types. There's a small initiatives that uh, we allocate a certain amount of time to, and they basically just get prioritized by the operating teams. And then there's the bigger strategic bets. And in terms of bigger strategic bets, we do two to three at a time. And we uh, basically analyze them on a few different matrices. So uh, for example, you know, standard matrix would be um, effort versus return. So we put our, all, our made, all our initiatives on there and look at them every quarter. Um, another one would be, um, you know, we look at the whys or the enablers for whys for our business. So typically in the marketplace, uh, people would shop with you because of your range, your pricing or your convenience, you know, that's sort of the, the, the mm. three main components inside your flywheel. We also look at sustainability and what we can do in that space as a, as a fourth why, which you know, it's more of an aspirational why, but something so that we think about a lot. Um, so we, we look at on a matrix, how do those initiatives help those whys and which, which gives us the most extra um, boost in enabling that why. And then, you know, another matrix we would look at is sort of growth, diversification. You know, do we look at new markets, new products, or existing products, ex existing markets, um, and making sure we have some diversification in terms of where we work so we don't just continuously improve existing products or continuously chase new products without improving existing products. So we, we, we try to achieve a balance of those. Mm. So they're sort of different ma matrices that we have up on the wall and we, we place the, the major initiatives on there and then we, we spend a couple of hours debating it. <laughs> mm. And then the leadership team reaches, I guess, uh, a consensus on, on, on where we take it. Uh, and replace the bet and, and run with it. But we're pretty agile. We, we review this at least quarterly and, um, you know, make changes as they, as they need to happen. And this year, certainly, you know, a lot of our plans went out the window. Like, we, when COVID hit, we, we went to zero revenue for 36 hours, which was, you know, incredibly terrifying as a brand new startup that, you know, was burning a lot of money at the time. Um, and so we completely had to change direction and we had to go from selling lifestyle products to selling groceries um, inside a week. So, you know, you can do all the planning in the world <laughs> and mm. something like that comes and you, you just have to completely change tact. Yeah. And you, um, you, you're talking about breaking down the focus and the time and, and you have some time for those big ideas. Is it important to have a mix within the team as well? And even even dealing with something out of the blue, like like uh, having to shift to, to more essential items to, to sell, is it important to have within the team, you know, 
not only the system orientated people, but they then also have an element of the like the crazy entrepreneur people running around that can adapt and and like do you, is that something that you think about in terms of the culture? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think sort of as CEO in a business, that's probably my single most important job is to form that team and continually evolve that team that achieves that balance. And, you know, I've learned that from my prior business and I've been involved in a few businesses. I ran one business for nearly 15 years and um, it took me, I'm trying to think of how many years, but probably five years to find the right leadership team for that business. Mm. And once I had the right leadership team, and what I mean by that is like the right balance of, you know, crazy risk taking, super creative, you know, sales orientation to conservative, risk adverse, operational focus, mm. to financial discipline, uh, to customer voice, uh, having all of those different elements in the room is really critical and it's a very hard thing um it's very hard thing to find a team like that uh, and establish the right balance so you know i think it's probably the most interesting thing in my business but also the hardest thing and if you mm. get there you can achieve amazing things like once i got that really tight team in my prior business like we just went boom 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 and went really quick um but you asked about the human side before business comes down to that human side and getting that right balance of the key people um, so that you can execute harmoniously and you know have healthy challenges um, and healthy risk-taking and healthy balance um, you know with sort of compliance and risk mitigation etc yeah that that's probably to me the most interesting thing about any business mm. where do you sit where do you sit on the spectrum of crazy entrepreneur to conservative operations? Uh, I'm probably slightly more on the pushy side. Um, so, I, you know, I, I constantly push the team, um, but I try to also mediate and, and bring people together where I can. So, you know, I, I'll push my first, probably my, my first mode would be push. And then second mode would be trying to mediate the, the, the different opinions and, and different approaches uh, where I can. But I think, you know, bringing the right energy, setting high, difficult goals, um, making sure the team buys into that, motivating them to commit. Um, that's probably sort of my, my go-to approach. Mm. Just um, speaking of the human side, like... <laughs> You know, you 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 sold your last business. Uh, you were running it for was it fifteen years? So you so it was yeah, you know, you... there Yeah, I mean, it depends on when you when you consider that business started. Actually, I uh, started in that space um, at the very end of high school, and then sort of ran a small version of that business in my bedroom during university. Mm. Uh, so if you add all of that to it, then it's probably a bit longer. But mm. if you consider end of university to when I sold it, yeah, it was roughly roughly fifteen years. That's a, so, so, so early on, it was was it the CMS? Yeah, I mean, early on it was <laughs> early on it was just working. I guess uh, in terms of the internet, like we we built websites. Um, then from building websites, we got into the CMS space because more and more people needed websites. People needed to manage those websites. Then people started selling things online and, and we're like, oh, wow, this is interesting. We need to find a way to help people sell things online. And this was before, uh, you know, solutions like Magento and Shopify and BigCommerce and all these sort of widely available commerce platforms were available. So we built our own product. And we built that and then then you know, we were immature and um, inexperienced in, in creating products. So before we knew it, we, we had you know, 40, 50 customers with different product, and then we had to learn how to become a product company. <laughs> um, yeah, and that sort of then led me into, into e-commerce. And eventually after selling the business, then I moved into the operator space, um, working on a marketplace in Asia. Um, and that's been, it's been quite fun, you know, just mm. spending so many years building building um, the platforms and the products to now operating one 
um, you know, it's a very different, very different game. Well, my question is going back to the question: like you've you've been on an incredible journey in terms of like the cutting edge of uh, of the space, really. Uh, why on earth? Why on earth would you want to start it all over again? Shouldn't you be floating somewhere on a yacht, drinking martinis or something now? Why do you want to? Why do you want to get back into this? <laughs> um, look, I, I I don't think. Um, well, for starters, I haven't been that crazy successful uh, like some of those platform players and you know if if it's all about timing right like we we started in the e-commerce space before the Shopify's and the Magento's and it was building a product but at the time I also didn't have the experience in terms of how to set up a true product company so we were more of a service company mm. and we exited as a service company and we did we did very well out of that um, but you know, I, I learned I learned a lot from that. And had I entered sort of as a product player, I'd probably be in a quite a different position now. Mm. Um, and I guess I learned from that as well that you know, being a service player is interesting, and you you learn a lot. And I'm I'm really grateful for those years because I worked with so many different businesses, so many different verticals. I, I learned tons. Um, but you're always working on a project, you know, one project after the next project, and you fix timelines and fix budgets. Um, after doing that, I really wanted to get into the product space because you can work on the one thing mm. for a long time and really um, perfect that, um, you know, as an as an end customer experience. Um, and that's sort of motivated me to, I guess, you know, start something new as well and and and, and build it up. And probably also spending a few years in China after selling my business. As I sold it to a Chinese firm and then and moved over there, seeing the platforms over there um, was inspiration for me in terms of ecosystems that I hadn't seen in the West. So just seeing, you know, what Ali achieved through mm. that on Tabo and Alipay ecosystem and what Tencent had built, um, what JD had built, um, uh, it just fascinated me, and I wanted to work on something similar. Um, and New Zealand was actually a really interesting market for that. So the opportunity came somewhat unexpected um, to work here. And I thought, you know, this is, this is a great market to, to build something like that because it's, it's um, small enough, um, you know, that it can have a meaningful impact fairly quickly. Can you, can you describe uh, a bit more some of those ecosystems that uh, that you're talking about in China? Because there's some really fascinating kind of connected parallels. But can you can you kind of talk about what what it is about those those ecosystems that are so different to say what we're doing in the West? Yeah, I guess it's just um, the connected nature of all the things they bring together, right? So um, if you think about an ecosystem. Maybe one way to think about it is rather than a company trying to solve one one problem, be that you know um, helping you find products, these ecosystems um, they're really sort of chasing metrics like user time, right? Mm. So they they ultimately chase how much how much time they get of a user per day, per month, per year, and that's a function of how much value they add across you know many different missions. Mm. Um, uh, for that user, right? So they connect, they connect a whole bunch of different services, you know, from shopping to messaging to payment, mm. logistics, um, and it's all it's all interconnected. Um, mm. And one creates value for the next, um, and that's that's really interesting because then you, you, you get network effects and um, yeah, incremental value um, uh, out of any one of those things. Um, so I thought that was that was particularly interesting, and just the experience that it enables for the customer um, was also really cool. So um, just you know, being in China a few years ago, and 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 you know, using WeChat, you know, to pay for everything, to unlock mm. my bike, to unlock my hotel room, uh, to order food, um, to talk to my friends, to talk to communicate with my colleagues um, to you know set up my savings account um, and organize insurance and buy movie tickets and uh, it was just incredibly easy and incredibly mm. powerful and, um, 
guess they sort of took it to the next level of building really a platform and then opening it up to lots of other people to use that as a base and, and apply their creativity on top of. Um, that was particularly cool. Um, so I thought, you know, I mean, I'm not, not trying to say here that I'm trying to build something as expansive as that, right? Um, but the approach and the ideas and the utility of it um, is sort of a source of inspiration. Mm. Can, we, can we just talk about the wider ecosystem in which an ecosystem like that will come out of? Because here you talk to a VC investor and you've got to be, you've got to be very hyper-focused in terms of what your business model is. And you were talking before about, you know, that kind of brutal focus. Like we, we don't tend to have an environment where we are encouraged to kind of think uh, very broad and, and I mean, how does, how do we start moving into, into a little bit of, a little bit more of that. I mean, I think I think you've got to earn your right to play in that space by creating enough utility in, in, in one area to begin with, and then you expand from there. But I don't think you can just start by saying, hey, we're going to build an ecosystem. Like, you, you've, you've got to create a source of value first and an audience, um, and then you, you, you can build from there. Um, I also don't think an ecosystem means you have to do everything yourself. You know, it's often around how you partner with people, um, how you connect and integrate um, with others that are solving, you know, adjacent problems. Mm. Um, and then you connect those things. Um, I think in general, the world's moving more towards that kind of model, you know, rather than a sort of monolithic singular ecosystem. Um, so, you know, partnerships are really critical, I think, in, in, in achieving anything there. Um, yeah, and I, I, it'll be interesting to see how how things evolve here because lots of people are working on sort of related topics, and you know, if you connect a few of those together, you could probably accelerate a play towards an ecosystem. Interesting. I'm going to ask a really, uh, probably another shitty broad question, but um, you know, if you look at New Zealand, if you look at the economy within a, on a, in a through a macro sense, but um, where do you see? Are you excited about the potential here? I mean, there's a lot that's kind of happened. We we're seen as a safe place uh, in, the, in the world, and we've got investors coming in. We've got very talented people moving back home. Um, what what do you, where do you see the the opportunities over the next couple of years? Yeah, look, I'm I'm pretty bullish on on New Zealand um, in general. You know, I think it was a it was a great place pre-COVID. It's an even greater place post-COVID. You know, we've got a we've got a um, competent government here. We've got um, good education system, smart people. Um, obviously, very desirable place to live. Um, it's far away from uh, the rest of the world, right? Which has mm. sort of often been a bit of a challenge, but that's becoming. You know more of a desirable these days than mm. than really um, you know a negative. So I'm I'm pretty pretty bullish um, on the future uh, for New Zealand. And also in terms of businesses, the world's getting smaller. You know as it's greater digitization, um, you don't need to be um, you know physically in all the markets to have a business in those markets. You know I've, I've met. Mm. So many interesting businesses here. The other day, I, I met a business that in like material science and um, clever small New Zealand firm, and you know, they had like a single-digit revenue share in New Zealand. Um, it's just amazing, you know, you, little stories like that. You know, mm. and it, it can be created from here um, with you know with the local talent and the local environment. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish um, on, on on where we'll go. Anything. Um... Yeah, and and it's good. I think I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Are you are you worried about anything? Do we need to work harder at, at certain things as well? Oh, I'm worried about anything. You mean as a country? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think. I mean, there's always opportunities to optimize. I mean, like you know, New Zealand, I think has an opportunity. Um, there is still like quite a strong sort of um, social divide, I would say, here, just living in other countries in terms of mm. um, demographics. And I think there's an opportunity to bring more prosperity to sort of wider New Zealand. You know, I think that's that's an interesting thing to think about uh, in terms of, I mean, there's obviously a whole bunch of government things there, but also um, 
small businesses, you know, how do you enable small businesses and, um, you know, and create more opportunities, um, you know, for, for the broad country. And I think digital space can contribute to that mm. a lot. Um, so that's something I think about a little bit. Um, obviously, you know, things like sustainability is an important thing, but New Zealand is pretty plugged into that and, and pretty focused on it, which is exciting. Um, but there's a lot more to be done there, right? So I think that's a really important thing. And also in our industry, it's a really important thing to work on because, mm. you know, it does cause problems as well. Um, yeah, but they're probably sort of sort of the main the main areas, I would say. And oh, and I guess New Zealand Inc. and, and, and how we how we leverage the position we're in now to, you know, create a sort of a global product is also an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, which is also goes to the idea of platform out, right? Rather than just platform in. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's an interesting opportunity for for us here specifically. You know, if 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 one day we have the vast majority of New Zealand business in a platform, you know, what can we do with that? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I don't want to get too downbeat on it, but I do find it interesting that you're talking about the that wealth divide. And I know it's, you know, I, I worry that it will become worse as well. You get the landed gentry and, you know, the uh, if you're in the housing market, that's good. And if you're not, then that's it. But it's interesting. I find it interesting that with your experience in, in Australia and China, you 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 pinpoint ours as being the most obvious is that is that the case that we oh no i'm not saying it i'm not saying it i'm just saying there is there is um i'm not saying that there is a greater problem um what i'm saying is there is opportunities to mm. um through digital in particular mm. uh, to create more opportunities um you know irrespective of location for example right like um historically um, you know, you you have more opportunities if you're in the uh, in in the metro areas, for example, right? Or you were geographically restrained in terms of what opportunities you have, yeah. you know, be it as a small business or a trader or whatever. I think through digital, through e-commerce, through marketplaces, you know, that can create opportunities for uh, businesses across the regions mm. um, and sort of democratize access to that somewhat. So that's an interesting thing to think about. Mm. Have you have you started to see that as well in terms of um, some of the some of the brands and the suppliers talking to you? Have you noticed that there is uh, like are there, you know, there might have been some really really clever um, uh, people that have been working for corporate found themselves uh, unemployed, so they've started up a, a production facility or they've created their own brand. Have you noticed that there is a bit of a, a resurgence of uh, New Zealand made products coming through as well? Um, yeah, I mean, okay. the main thing I would have seen it with was during COVID in terms of things like sort of more technical stuff like mask production and stuff like that. Like that was like mm. an obvious one that we saw in, it, saw it in the last few months. Um, outside of that, there's a constant flow of, of uh, you know, new brands and new ideas. Um, I wouldn't say I've seen like a particular surge, like sort of outside mm. of, of sort of initial COVID response, but I'm sure that will come. You know, like I anticipate there'll there'll be a lot more of that coming in the you know in the next year, really. Mm. Uh, <coughs> Another broad question, but any advice that you would have for parents uh, in terms of how to how to prepare their kids for uh, for the digital future as well? Apart from saying focus on product as in, instead of service, uh, but anything else that you might uh, like a like? Do I get my daughter into coding? What do I do? That's a very tough question. I've got uh, three kids myself, and my eldest being nine. So. Uh, yeah, look, it's something I think about a lot in terms of how much how much do you expose kids on one hand and because mm. you, know, you also need to protect them somewhat. And, and we struggled with that in our household a little bit already, just in terms of a lot of the content that's out there and, you know, how accessible everything is. It's just different to, you know, when you and I grew up. So, and I don't have any particularly amazing advice around that other than to acknowledge that it's difficult and something we, as parents, we need to think about a lot, you know, how we how we protect, but then also enable uh, enable um, kids to leverage it. I would sort of think in terms of career choices moving forward, 
uh, you know, as all this technology evolves, um, the, the sort of biggest assets, um, you know, and um, didn't come up with this, you know, like a, you know, some smarter people than me have said this before, but, um, you know, really skills around sort of empathy, skills mm. around creativity, um, you know, are going to be more and more and more important, um, you know, as more of this sort of the, the, the base tasks get solved by technology. Mm. Um, and I'm seeing that, you know, with my team here now as well, you know, in terms of some of the tech problems that we solve, like 10 years ago, those problems were harder to solve. So it's not, it's not so much about like having the best technologist, it's almost having the most creative technologist. Interesting. You know, the best solution. Or, um, you know, the person with the most customer empathy that can, you know, really relate to um, the particular customer problem and break that down and come up with a clever way to connect, um, you know, with that customer. Um, so to me, they're probably the most important skills and, you know, preparing your kids around that. What that means in a practical sense, I, I don't actually profess to know, but I think if, if, if you prepare your kids to be as creative and as empathetic, then it's possible, then they will succeed. Mm. No, that's great advice. That is, I think that's, I've been speaking of family as well, entrepreneurs tend to have, uh, well, they've got a bit of a reputation of having really bad work-life balance. How's, how's yours? <laughs> oh, uh, historically, yes, definitely. I mean, in the early days with my previous business, um, I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday, you know, we used to work like six days a week and obviously pre-kids. Um, uh, but it's gotten a lot better. And I've got to say, with what's happened this year, it's, it's opened sort of our eyes to new possibilities. So mm. we, we still have a pretty flexible work arrangement with working from home and made a decision to keep it as a permanent thing. So you can work from home, you know, two to three days a week when you choose when you do that. Mm. And I've noticed that, you know, once the sort of helpful lockdown was over and the craziness was solved for, um, I've gotten used to the new flexibility and it's it has meant more time with the family in a sense that you know, previously I would get up, quick breakfast, out the door, and I probably wouldn't be home till 7.30, 8 o'clock most days. Right? So I'd see my kids in the morning quickly, but wouldn't see them at night really. Um, where by now, I often I get up early, I might do some work from home, then have breakfast, take my kids to school, most days probably now. Um, work, I'll probably leave work, 5.36, come home, have dinner with the kids. Not every day, but say maybe three, four days of the week. And then I do some more work afterwards. And um, we, <laughs> uh, Outlook has this new analytics tool that tells you when you're most active. And it's quite interesting, I was studying the other day and uh, it tells you when you get the most inbound chat messages and emails and when you have the most outbound. So I, I now have my most outbound period is, is sort of 8.30 till, till 10.30. So I'm actually doing the same amount of hours, but I've, I've changed my routine and I think I've become probably a lot more helpful at home as a result of it because I can, like before I wouldn't have felt comfortable leaving work a bit early and having a bit of a break at that time because a lot of stuff was going on. But I think it's just become normal now um, that people have you know flexible hours and respond at different times and it's become more acceptable um, and it's good you know it's mm -hmm. not it's not easier but it's just it just enables it enables more of a balance um, so it's you know I'm hoping that will stay I think it will because I'm, I'm hearing similar positive feedback from people around me so How's the how's the pushy leader side of you going though? Have you found um, with that flexibility that the that the that the output from the rest of the team is that is it is productivity still there? It's a really good question. You know, I would say certainly in the beginning it was more output hmm. because there was real around. Um, you know, we have to succeed. We have to make this new thing work. Um, and I think that's probably back to a normal state now. Um, 
you know, I think there is, of course, going to be cases where the, you know, the, the flexibility could be abused or where people can slip into, you know, comfort state. Um, but you can sort of front load that as well, right? So, you know, I've, I've, I think my answer to that is, you know, really focus, focus on the goals and the measurables and sort of proactively deal with those issues. So, for example, with Fridays, uh, you know, we set we set tough goals, but we also say to people, you know, if you if you get your stuff done, then you know, you can leave on Friday at, at three o'clock. If you've done your week's work, work, work you know, front load the work. Mm. Um, and as long as you establish transparency, um, you know, that people still get their work done, um, then I think that can work. Uh, but you, you've got to have the right systems and the right measures in place. Um, and so sort of freedom within a framework, right, I think is, is important. If you don't have the framework, then it can, mm. you know, it could go, go tricky. But so far, I think we are at least as productive, if not more productive. Brilliant. Um, yeah. All right. One, one last question so I can let you go and be, be productive. But uh, and don't mock me, by the way, but I do. Number one on my uh, watch list is uh, Baby Yoda, Lego, Baby Yoda. Um, out, of your, out of your 2 million plus, plus products, is there, is there a particular product that you've got your eye on? Oh, to purchase for myself? Yeah. This is, this is an interesting question. I was actually last night because we just finished our Black Friday, Cyber Monday week, mm. which was a, a crazy week, um, absolutely crazy week for us. Um, and I was doing a bit of FOMO shopping last night. <laughs> you're, you're, always, you're always looking at the deals and going, well, this deal is going to expire. What, what should I buy? Um, I have been looking at... Um, uh, a fancy treadmill that we that we sell, which I haven't pressed the button on yet, but I'm debating it with my wife at the moment. Oh, that's great. Like well, it's not a super fancy treadmill. It's like a uh, it's a treadmill you control with your with your phone, and you can you can put it under your desk and you can fold it up. Um, so I'm interested in that um, just because after all this COVID period, I need to <laughs> get, get back into shape. Um, but yeah, that's probably my last purchase that I looked at, which is a bit random, I know. Mm. Um, but I buy, of course, I buy a lot um, through the platform anyway. So, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> well, you put you put my baby Yoda to shame, but that's all right. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. Enjoy the chat.